Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Forty. Yes. So I'm going to do my just best Jeremy Clarkson impression. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bilge Pumps, episode forty. And now we have officially hit our midlife crisis point. It's time to buy a Jag. <laughs> <laughs> But whilst we're waiting for the inevitable, of course, sponsorship by Jaguar Land Rover, um, you're stuck with the the three of us, our regular hosts, me, Drew Kinnefell. Um We've got Jamie of Armoured Carriers, uh, Dr. Alexander Clark of AC Naval History, and a special guest this week, uh, David Larter. Hello. He's oh. a of the U.S. Navy. <laughs> well... well U.S. Navy, formerly, I'm uh, the now at the the uh, naval warfare writer for Defense News is my current occupation. Yeah, and he's, he has produces some of the most interesting articles that come out there. There are also some which I, I can see coming because you do have, and actually that's one reason why we have him on today is because there is one topic which he keeps coming back to, which is something that we talk about a lot, and we're going well. No one else wants to talk to us about it, so we're going to get David on because, despite us sort of, as a rule, bilge pumps doesn't tend to sort of talk with other people who talk and investigate. We try and get, like you, try and get the experts on. I mean, but none of the, it's going to sound strange. The U.S. Navy would want to talk to us about it. We, I've asked, and I thought, well, actually, the best thing is because you keep coming back to us and we are keep circling around it. We'll get on and talk about it. And of course, we're talking about the fact that the US Navy ships look like they are turning to rust, literally. Yes. And it's not just the zinc anodes which are missing or the fuel tanks which are leaking. Uh, just tell us about it, David. So uh, it, it's, it's interesting how things change over time. So when I was in, this was 2002 to 2006, um we had uh you know i spent a good amount like every good sailor does a good amount of my time chipping and painting the the outside of the ship and obviously the inside as well and it's so it was always drilled into my head that the appearance of the ship was of utmost importance and for me that you know like all sailors you know complain quite a bit about it um you know why are we chipping and painting the ship when it's uh you know when we're uh you know when we could be going out on liberty or out on leave and and you know and it, the answers would often be well the admiral is going to be walking down the pier uh you know at the end of the week and wants to make sure that the ships all look good and that there's no running rust and so the, the the culture that I was raised in was very much, you know, the, the way that the Navy looks is important. Um, and so when I came back to reporting on the Navy in 2014, I started noticing that the ships did not look good and that this is the same. And so I was thinking, well, the same Navy that I was in isn't the same Navy as today. The deployments are a lot longer. Um, you know, I was in, there was, we, we had a hard cap at around seven months. And generally speaking, six months was the norm. And if you had to extend to seven months, it was for, you know, special circumstances. Um, now they were going out for eight, nine, ten months at a time. Um, 
so the you know the the challenges mount the longer that you're out uh, in terms of physical appearance, and then obviously what's under the hood, the the tanks and and uh, the discharges and all that stuff starts to starts to really t- take a beating the longer you're running the equipment through salt water. So, you know, but over time you think, okay, well now this is a this is a this is a this is a temporal thing, right? It exists in a time and space when um, the Navy is specifically hard pressed and you know we'll get back to it right we'll get back to six month deployments and we'll get back to making sure our ships look good but we just don't we never have it the the demand signal is a constant it's just we've never gotten back to this place of well we're going to reset the fleet and make sure that we can bring up the physical appearance of our ships and because it's so important to the mission right if you show up in theater and you're there to supposedly reassure your allies, but you look like the the Soviet Navy from you know the the late Cold War. It doesn't reassure anyone. Uh, in fact, you know when their ships come out to exercise with you and look ten times better than you do, you know a little working class rust on the outside is fine. But you know if you look like you haven't been a caring for the physical appearance of your ship, it starts to raise questions in the in the minds of other navies who put a great deal of pride and attention into their ships. You know, well, does what's on the outside look like what's on the inside? And so I think that's you know, and and that may sound trite and it may sound petty, um, but it just is what it is. That's the standard among navies is that your ships have it's a very physical appearance. It's a very, very human trait, isn't it, to to, um, to feel like you dress, mm. or to dress like you feel. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it's, I I did a little bit of psychology decades ago when I was uh, still trying to decide whether I was going to be be a journalist or not, and uh, you know, of course, one of the things that they mentioned there was the whole, you know, um, change change in behaviour according to the clothes that you wear. So if you're dressed like a police officer, you behave like a police officer. Not necessarily, you know, um, in terms of uh, you know, the language and, and doing the job, but you adopt the more authoritarian, the more, you know, um, curt sort of approach to dealing with things. Um, and it's, yeah, this is one of the reasons why a lot of corporations are very uh, strict about dress uniform because well, not, not, not dress uniforms but dress standards because they know that it's not only does the impression of a person's clothing impress who they're dealing with it also impresses themselves so you know if it, it's it, there's there's a deep psychological uh, message in the state of your clothing and it's not hard to extrapolate to the state of a ship so if your ship is looking tired and ragged, well, it's probably because your crew's tired and ragged, and it becomes a bit of a self-perpetuating um, cycle that the crew starts to feel more down because their ship is more is, is looking more tired and ragged. Therefore, they let it go more. Um, it's, it, it's it's a very hard cycle to, to to snap, I would imagine. Especially when it's always billed as an don't just wrong. The, the amount of times I hear, oh, the Americans have far more crew per sh- ship than 
the British or the French or the Italians, etc., do. And you realize they have more crew intensive vessels. That's what they, the, the Americans do seem to go for more a crew intensive approach. But the moment you but the British and the sort of then other nations then look at them and go, well, we keep our ships are clean, our ships are grey, and what's you know what what's going on here? You know, you know, our smaller crew is managing to do this, and yeah. it, it it's always terrible to say, but looks matter in these circumstances when you're turning up for present. If you are sending a diplomat on a mission, and that's basically what a ship turning up is, it's a diplomat. If you send that diplomat, an ambassador out, would you send the ambassador out in a terrible jalopy, a sort of car which is going to break down every five minutes? Or would you send them in the finest example of car your country can produce? Would, or in the nicest way, most people do is buy a German Mercedes or German BMW or something like that. But you know, if you don't produce cars, but. Countries tend to have a national car maker or a good one that they can rely on and they produce a very good quality car. They put them in. And they have a chauffeur whose job is to make sure that car looks freaking pristine. And the ambassador turns up in a suit and tie or whatever the equivalent is in that area and looks smart and spick and All these things matter because in diplomacy and in international relations, if you don't turn up looking, uh, looking decent, it's like if you turned up at someone's house for a party. And let's say it was their a wedding anniversary or something like that, and they were having a party, and they said Chris Crow's a smart casual, and you turn up in I don't know jeans with holes in them, uh, not even the stylish jeans with holes in them, which is why you pay more for jeans with holes in. I do not understand <laughs> that. Uh, that that's my example. cousin's, uh, you know, that, that just, just disturbs me on level. And a ripped old T-shirt covered in paint stains which uh, might well be a fashion statement now, but in my mind is not, you'd sort of look like you're being pretty rude to them. Yes, you'd come to the party. Yes, you were there. Yes, you might be in a normal life and soul, the party you are, and the important person who get, makes everything go to her. But you look like you really don't care. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, ultimately, the, the, the Navy is... I, I have sympathy for it. I get a lot of pushback from the fleet um, saying... You know, okay, well, what do you want us to not do, right? So, like, what are the things that you'd rather us not do um, to take the time to meet all these insane new um, environmental standards? They're not insane. I, 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 I think that we shouldn't be putting junk into the into the water, and I think that, but, but whatever we have to do to make sure our ships don't look like that, I think that's of the utmost importance. To your to your guys' point, I mean, I think. It, it, it is okay if if a couple of your systems don't work as well um, in in a peacetime operation that's less important than the way the ship looks I mean it, it just is to me if, if you're tooling around uh, in a theater that you don't expect um, to be fighting a shooting war in you know right away the more important thing is with the way you look when you pull into, uh, you know, the Philippines or you pull into Thailand or you pull into, um, you know, Malta or any any one of these ports that we visit on, on a regular basis. Because, I mean, ultimately, it, it really does matter um, to the locals. It matters to the navies that you're working with. It matters to everyone. The, the, the way you look, because they're, they're going to look at it, and the first thing they see is is that. And, and it's funny. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of 
wrap up my thought here that when I was, you know, in the fleet, that used to be the thing. And I was in at a time when um, at a time when the the senior chiefs and the senior officers were all Cold Warriors. Right. So they'd come up in the Cold War. And so they would say things like you don't want a ship to look like it was in the Soviet Navy. Well, now you can't really say that anymore, partly because all those officers have pretty much retired. And if the ones that are still in from the 80, late 80s and 90s are now the four stars and three stars and don't spend a whole heck of a lot of time looking at the fleet. Um, you know, ultimately, those guys, um, those guys don't make up the fleet anymore. And, and I, I have to wonder if some of that institutional memory of what looking at, you know, what should be a great powers fleet and seeing a rust bucket looks like um, because they might recognize themselves but, these but, yeah, days. It, it's, 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 the scenario is one that's a little bit more than just paint deep, isn't it, really? Mm. Because you, know, you might be comparing that tired-looking Arleigh Burke sitting alongside of a shiny um, Australian Anzac frigate, for example. Um, but I can pretty much guarantee that Anzac frigate hasn't been on station anywhere near as long as that Burke. Yeah, hasn't done anywhere near hasn't done anywhere as near as many miles in the past twelve months as that book, um, and you know, uh, so I, I guess yeah, I, I can certainly see that there is a underlying reason for that tiredness, but um, as you're as you're indicating, you know, is 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 it worth it? Is is the is, is the um, duration of the missions that pushes you to, to have your ships reduced to such a state worth it? Um, or is it, you know, worth having your ships out there looking like they're not 100%? So w the balance of, is it better to have those ships out there for an extra three months or six months? Or is it better to haul them back, cut that, that, that deployment short by six months, but keep them... Um, in you know, looking like they're they're worth um, a billion dollars. Yeah, I I think there's there's also a couple of additional things to, um, to point out. One of which is a certain amount of rust will always happen on deployments. It's the nature of operating in the sea. It's not a particularly pleasant environment, especially for metal ships. However, and if you're a... on the older Type 23s, they used mm. to actually have get damaged by the sea so much you actually see their frames through their hull because the hull the steel used to be thicker or thinner let's say and now they've most as most of them have re rebuilt and somehow they've gained thicker steel on their hulls and they stopped showing their frames it's amazing but but the thing is that there's a certain amount of rust that any ship can take as surface rust from an engineering perspective and you can scrape that off paint over it it's not really a, a massive issue but if you start getting a lot of rust, it gets deeper and deeper rust. Well, I was going to say you can't paint over it. You can paint over it. It's an entirely stupid idea to do so. But in from a practical materials engineering perspective, if the rust starts to get deep, that means a a lot more time to actually clean it off later. And B, it's now actually eating into bits of your ship. And that might not make a massive difference right now, but considering these things are supposed to have whole lives of 30 plus years that might eventually if this continues knock five ten years off of the expected whole life of the ship as a whole which 
especially in an era now where China is just going, ha ha, ship printer go burr. Um, <laughs> the US really doesn't need to be facing a situation where five, 10, 15 years down the line, they're going, well, we were planning on replacing these hulls at this certain rate. And now we've got to take a bunch of them out of service because otherwise they're going to crack into the next time they go out to sea because some vital part of it has rusted through and it would be stupidly expensive to rip the whole thing apart and replace that one bit. So there's a practical engineering side to it. But I think there's also a much larger implied side to it, because obviously we don't want to go back to the sort of late 19th century Royal Navy spit polish and we've doubled the, the width of every single hull frame because we've laid on so many type bits of paint. But We don't? That sounds it makes quite it cool for hull preservation to me. It makes it difficult to close your bulkheads properly. Well, <laughs> yes. But, you know, um, that's just incidental. That's just incidental, <laughs> my dear Drakenabel. But the the, the think the of other... how good they look in those colours. <laughs> the the other thing you've got to bear in mind though is that it, as I say, it's it's got a certain amount of implication for the rest of the ship because if you don't have the time or the crew to spare for what yes is irritating but is ultimately a relatively simple process of keeping the ship painted that means you're running your crews ragged which means they've got an awful lot of other things to be getting on with which it sounds like what david was saying some of people saying look we've got all these other things to do we can't can't get around to it but it's like yes okay but if you're run ragged in such to such an extent you can't maintain the exterior appearance of your ship what else are you not doing what other shortcuts are you taking? What other systems are being yeah. maintained? And what implication is that going to have when you actually need those systems? Because if a, if you run a crew ragged 24-7, 365 days a year, for years on end, things will get overlooked, things will get missed, things won't be fixed properly. And you're going to things will start going wrong. like anything. Yeah, and, and when it comes down to a shooting war, not only will you have um or even a, a very heavily armed standoff not only will you end up with a bunch of systems that potentially could catastrophically fail on you at the worst possible moment when you put the most stress on them but you're going to have crews who are going to be sitting there effectively looking like extras out of the walking dead it's like when when somebody yells like you know, vampire 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 and everyone's supposed to start semi-panicking and firing missiles off left right and center especially with modern threats where you might have less than a minute to react if you've been running your crew ragged for months and months on end the sort of instead of going oh right yeah button press radar up aegis automatic fire mode go you might have someone going oh, what the um um oh yeah that but that button right oh no 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 it wasn't that one it was that one yeah, I think it was that one because they're just completely shattered, and one person making a mistake like that, even if it delays the ship coming into action by five, ten seconds, if you've got Mach three missiles coming in, that's probably half a dozen or a dozen um, SM twos you haven't lofted into the air, and they've all got, and all the enemy's got all a lot closer, and now you have a much higher possibility of somebody taking a hit. So it's it's not in that respect per se the fact that the paint isn't there that is the problem. It's the reason why the paint isn't there that's the yeah. problem. 
Yeah, that, that that's really interesting. The I remember um, I, I'm recalling the, uh, the the all out war scenario that you bring up is an interesting one because um, you know Aegis does at a certain point. I I'm amused by all the people that are uh, so worried about machines making kill decisions for an Aegis operator like myself. Uh, you just kind of look left and look right like do, do you guys not know <laughs> uh, because Aegis does that right if you go into the all-out war scenario and um, missiles are flying left right and center at, at a certain point our job is over uh, we just turn it on and it it does its thing and then we're out of missiles or we're not uh, ideally we're, we're not um, but you know most times we are and, and the human factors start to become very limited because we're shooting everything that's in the sky out of the sky um, that presents a certain profile. Um, I think the larger, more scary problem is the phase that we will hopefully never leave, and that is the below the level of all-out war. And that's when things like sleep and crew rest and reasonable operational tempos come into play. If you'll recall the uh, Vincennes incident, tragic incident in uh, the, the Persian Gulf when it shot down a uh, Iranian airliner, it, it, the Iranians think that, you know, that their, their very reasonable supposition was that this is the most advanced combat system in the world. There's no way that you didn't mean to do that, that you shot that down intentionally. And they weren't allowing for the fact that for the most part, and you know, probably propaganda reasons too, I'm sure they probably do understand, but ultimately for the most part, those decisions are made by human beings sitting at consoles looking at data. And the system... It, this I don't think we would make the same mistake, the same specific mistake that we did in, in Vincennes again, but that happened because of a number of different human factors. And one of them was that uh, the, the net got too crowded, um, that people were talking over each other, um, there was confusing things going on in the headset, and the read on that specific track and that specific track profile became a little muddied um, by just too many people on the net, a simple human factor, um, you know, that, that ran into a technological roadblock. But those are the kinds of things that become really important in the phase of combat that we are now with, with, with China. And that is not at combat in combat, but you will have to make decisions about the intent of that aircraft. You will have to make decisions about the intent of that ship. And if you're tired and if you're, um, frustrated and stressed and, you know, not adequately, you know, uh, trained um, because you've shortened your training cycle because you're trying to meet this incre incredible operational demand and maybe the thing that, the, the training that you missed would have been something vital in this specific circumstance. That's what the, where the danger is because that's what starts wars, right? That's what starts international yes. incidents at, at best. And haven't there already been examples? I'm trying, struggling to remember the actual reports of them about the the collisions that yes. some Burks were in. And wasn't there a case, one of them, at least one of them, I think, where the officer in the CIC was actually trying to deal with paperwork? Yes. While running the CIC. Yeah, that was because the there was so much paperwork that they had, they couldn't. 
it, it was basically a case of they can sleep, they can do their day-to-day job, or they can do paperwork. And you sit there and go, excuse me, there is this rank in the Royal Navy, I'm not sure if the US Navy has a government, called writer. And it's actually a person who's, it's a it's enlisted person, who tends to deal with quite a lot of, it sorts out the administration. Now, there aren't millions of them running around the Royal Navy. I don't want any listeners to think the Royal Navy is full of them. But they do tend to have a couple wandering around. And they're quite critical in trying to manage the workload and the paperwork of the office. Yes, there is still way too much paperwork in the Royal Navy. There's probably so much paperwork in every government organisation, in every organisation in the world. Because, let's be honest, it's far easier to create a new report for someone to have to do than for anyone to say, actually, this report no longer needs to be done. Right. Uh, there are probably still reports done which are which have been dating, uh, dating back to 1812 or beyond that in both navies. Let's be honest. They won't, uh, getting rid of a report from an organisation is far, far more difficult than getting a new one made. But the thing is, they managed to keep it to a slightly more manageable level, but it seems to me in the US Navy, every time I talk to the US Navy, there are... Things like that don't happen. And it's like the Royal Navy has a tradition of having a captain steward, which they still do, whose job is literally to make sure the captain eats. The captain steward's principal job is their job is that the captain is pro- whoever they are on the ship is the most important decision making tool you have on that ship. So. They will, because of the amount of work they have to do, they will probably forget to eat. They will probably be on call most of the time because if there is an emergency, they will be there. So you have to make sure they eat, they drink, they get fresh clothes, they remember to sleep and, and all these things. So the Royal Navy, on if you're on a ship like a Prince of Wales or Queen Elizabeth one of the carriers, you will find, and there was a television program, there's a captain steward whose job is literally to make sure that grown adult, which you want to be focusing all your time on running the Navy, doesn't and running that ship doesn't have to worry about doing the things they have to do to be a normal functioning human being. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Did you see the 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 uh, Greyhound uh, over the? Yeah. The, that was a. I mean, it was a brilliant movie, and I think it probably captured the the culture of the U.S. Navy as well as I've ever seen any mm. any movie do so. And they, you know, there was obviously that that role was uh, played by. Um, an african-american at the at the time and that was because they just that was the role that the navy would allow them to do uh was mess cook and you know it was interesting how um it is interesting how that that specific role only exists insofar anymore as the co wants it to exist right and it's like sort of a rank has its privileges thing so if you're an 06 uh commander you can you can have your own um can have your own mess cook and and that would fulfill that function so it's less so today in the u.s navy but your point remains that you know that it it was a a long-standing tradition and frankly it's still valid right i mean the the co the co i'm always amazed at uh at the leadership lessons that just being in the navy will teach you right i mean when you saw the kind of all the chaos in the U.S. government when when uh, President Trump took over, uh, it, it was partly because apparently that's how he ran his business. It was kind of a chaos empire, right? I mean, you would 
you would uh, people would scrap to fight fight it out to get their position elevated to the president, and the president would ultimately uh, make a decision. And you know, and very lean staff and a very core group of people that make make decisions. But that's just not how a massive bureaucracy works. So it, through our, you know, to take that style and put it at the White House through the whole government organization into chaos. And to me, that's not a, abnormal because the, the federal government is a, a, an organization like a ship is an organization, right? Uh, it's much bigger than a 350-person crew or a 400-person crew, but it, it's the same thing. The guy at the, at the top or the woman at the top sets the culture for the whole, for the whole ship. And, and to kind of... And, and, and if they're if they're having a bad day, the crew's going to have a bad day. Uh, if they're um, if they are uh, if if the CEO is is distracted and a distractible and disorienting sort of presence on the ship, the whole ship's going to be disorienting and distractible and 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 not necessarily sure how they fulfill the the needs and wants and desires of this rather erratic person that's apparently been put in the command. So. That, that's that's how it works and sort of bring it around to the conversation that we've been having about corrosion. I, I'm not I, I wonder I wonder about the culture that our current generation of COs was raised in. Um, I'm not saying it's their fault uh, because I don't think it is. I think I think the fault is with those that aren't creating white space in the schedules that they don't manage. Um, to do this sort of thing, to, to do the kind of type of prop, uh, uh, topside preservation that would make a more presentable fleet. But I wonder about the culture that raised our current generation of CEOs will then go into senior leadership and they've been raised in a culture of, well, there are certain things that matter and there are certain things that, can, that don't matter. And one of the things that doesn't matter is how the ship looks. And I worry well, you about were, that. You were saying I worry about people- that. You're saying shortly before um, we started this podcast um, of the keep it simple, stupid approach that's very much ingrained. Yeah. Um, uh, whether it's a drill parade to you know, operating your ship. Um, strip back too far, perhaps. Yeah. It's taking it, taking, keeping it too simple, keeping it too stupid. Um, yeah, and it's interesting. The, the latest case uh, of of this came from Leyte Gulf, right? And that, that happened this past week, and Leyte Gulf was uh, out on deployment, uh, and they were heading across the ocean. And then uh, apparently what happened is you had a fundamentally weak tank, uh, fuel tank already from corrosion, which, by the way, it's a 35-year-old ship. You know, these things... Are, are based on the Spruance class of, of mm. uh, Destroyer. And those were taken out of service at like, I think an average of 26, 27 years, right? And it was because, and we took them out of service because they were starting to get very expensive to operate. And the, the, the admirals made the decision that um, relative to their capability, the expense wasn't worth it keeping them in the fleet. And we definitely reduced the size of the fleet significantly and we've never been able to recover it because we decommissioned the Spruance class. But we decommissioned them because they were getting too expensive to operate. And now the Arle- uh, the Ticonderogas are almost 10 years older than the Spruance class, which was decommissioned because they were too old to operate uh, effectively and, and cheaply. And so, yeah, the tank 
was corroded because those tanks corrode because when you put the the when you take the fuel out of the storage tank and you send it into the service tank you backfill it for ballast reasons with seawater right and so seawater and metal makes corrosion as we all know and and you know marine coatings and things like that over time wear away and as this marine coating wears away obviously the corrosion becomes worse and the tank becomes um that becomes susceptible to to failure and so you know when we look at the ships and we see uh, the running rust on the outside, it's a little like a cough. And I'm stealing this metaphor from a friend, so I, if he's listening, I'm sorry. But it's a little like, uh, it's a, little like a, a cough, right? A cough could be allergies, or it could be a cold, or you could have lung cancer. So when you look at the outside of the ship, is that a cough because it has a mild cold or, you know, the sniffles because of the pollen in the air? Or is it a a more serious problem on the inside. And apparently, according to Leyte, if, if you if you looked at the outside of Leyte Gulf and you saw rust, that would be cancer. You have tanks that are then failing and spilling into the bulge and creating a fire hazard. You know, the fuel oil sloshing around in the bilge, uh, that's dangerous. You got to go home. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to sh- pull a ship off deployment because of corrosion on a 35-year-old ship that's too probably too old to still be in the fleet anyway. But that's but, but, one of your first rates. Don't tell yeah, that to that's Blue That's one Ridge. of your first rates. <laughs> that's one of your very few first rates, you know. Uh, uh, if anyone's listening who hasn't heard Bill Drops before because they come because David's on, uh, we have been discussing an idea of changing the cruiser destroyer frigate to back to a sort of rating system based on VLS tubes and using the first, second and third rates. And the only first rates which the Americans have are the Ticos. And you sit there and go, is part of the reason you're keeping hold of these ships, and even, even though, because you can't replace them with equivalents at the moment because you haven't got the design through because Zumwalt, you've tried to put too much technology and all these sort of things in. And you sit there and go, but they, they're an old ship. And again... I am drawn back to the Royal Navy because I look at the refits which they've put the Type 23 frigates through. And let's be honest, as complicated and as beautiful as the Type 23 is, they are A, young compared to the Ticos, and B, they are a lot simpler. And yet the Royal Navy has put them through massive refits to keep them going till the Type 26s and Type 31s come in. They have spent a lot of money refitting these ships. They're beautiful, by the way, too. They, they, I, I, the work that they did on the, the, on that, on that class is is fantastic. I got a chance to walk around one a uh, couple of years ago, and it's it's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. It's the um, and I mean, this is the thing. It's as remember you say, that the... was supposed to be the cheap frigate design, the Type Twenty Three, and you consider how long that's lasted in the Royal Navy. You have to sit there and go, how long will the Type Thirty One last? Considering that's the next generation of supposedly cheap frigates. <laughs> And the thing, you, when you look at it, you've got to think, uh, as you point out with, with the later Gulf, something as simple as corrosion, not not only does, in this case, it sends it home, maybe in a combat situation, it wouldn't be sent home. But then with, with all that fuel sploshing around in, in the bilge, if it does take a hit, you are going to see an awful lot more fire than the damage control system is designed to cope with, which... Yep. 
then then you have a ship that's actually lost to possibly a survivable hit just because it had corrosion going on and i was just and reminded, the crew. Mm, yeah and i was reminded also of um in the past few years we've had uh a couple of sm2s prematurely detonate you had mm-hmm. one of launched off the Sullivans that went off and did its own thing before smashing into the sea right next to the ship. And then you had the one on the German frigate, the Saxon, which decided it just wasn't going to leave the tube. And I'm now granted, I think, I don't know for certain, but I think with the Saxon, they're actually using one that had gone past its use by date, which may be why it um, cooked off. But Again, and, uh, again, to listeners who never heard us, yes, missiles and weapons do have use by dates, and it's a, it's not like with food when it's been in the fridge for a day or so longer. It's possibly okay if you're going to cook it well, just sniff it and check it first. It's a case of it's had a use by date. It's got high explosives in it. Please get step away from it carefully. Unless unless you're manning the rapier batteries in the Falkland Islands, because firing off used rapiers was apparently a great source of entertainment because no one ever knew where they were going to go <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes but you can get away with these things in the Falklands. islands you can't get away with them in civilized society well Falklands yeah. no no you can't get the Falklands islanders are civilized society but the the british various british forces down there in the rapier right. batteries aren't <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, lovely but, people yeah, but not civilized but society the, the thing is it's like those kind of Okay, occasionally it'll be a manufacturing area. You can't do much about that. But something like, when was the used by date of this missile? That's the kind of thing that you can miss through crew fatigue. And yeah. then you go out potentially into a combat situation, even if it's not all out war, with a missile like that. And then what happens if you're called into a situation where you're trying to defend yourself? You fire one missile, great. You fire the second missile, the second missile explodes in its canister, crippling your VLS farm. And all of a sudden, you're now left without, at best, half of your missile launch capability just when someone's actually shooting at you. Mm-hmm. It, well, it's, it's... And what happens if you have one of those COs who is completely OCD and insists on having all their anti-air missiles in one VLS section and all their land strike in the other VLS so that they have them nicely organized? Because I did meet one American... See, I'm not going to name them. They are actually still in the American Navy who did insist on every ship they were in that they had the VLSs clearly demarked and they only had the air defense missiles in one VLS and the land strike in the other VLS. And you sit there and go, that's a lovely, very, very uh, um, accountant way of organizing it. Please <laughs> never get on a Royal Navy ship. But we only have one VLS section, so we'll say. But, you know, please don't. <laughs> funny yeah the, the i i think back to the um, it's funny but you're crying on the inside david i can <laughs> see you've got the camera on because you're going i think i know which guy that is <laughs> it's funny now the, the there was an incident a few years back um between one of our cruisers and a, and a chinese uh, plan vessel that I, and I don't want to get too far into the specifics because it's it's I don't have enough of the information to kind of report on it. But from the rumor mill, I'd heard um, that it, it was a CO that got into some trouble later, um, and uh, for something completely unrelated, personal matter. Um, but I had heard from the the crew of that specific deployment 
that it was a bad deployment. It was just a they turned it they turned the ship around too quickly. Um, that they didn't have adequate training. Their systems weren't in good shape. Uh, just not a not a good deployment at all. Um, and they got into a confrontation with a, a Chinese ship, and it was one of those situations where I'm sure China. There, there are just unspoken rules between. There are spoken rules. There's the conduct at the the. There's a there's a specific code of conduct that we've agreed to with China and how our ships will interact. And then there's the unspoken rules of this is about as far as we'll let you go. Um, and you know, in terms of a provocative action. Um, and then we get into a gray area of like, are you really going to ram me? Are you about to shoulder me here? Or, or is this, is this situation going to turn into something that's a little more, you know, kinetic? kinetic? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and apparently the CO misread the situation and the, the, the rumor that I heard anyway, is that the Chinese amphib, uh, that was on site between these two ships, uh, had the, the CEO of a, another Chinese ship had to actually kind of come in and break up the situation to sort of to detention, to, to, to release the tension in the situation and, and had, uh, and it had to kind of take command of the scene. So the, the Chinese Navy actually had to defuse the situation that apparently RCO had misread. And, and why do I get tell this sort of vague story? It, it's because these are the sorts of things that happen if you're running your ship too hard or you're running your crews and your commanders too hard and, and putting them under too much stress. Um, they may make bad reads of very tense situations that don't need to get much more than um, they were just trying to send you a signal that they, they they weren't pleased that you were at that specific spot at that specific time. And we're asking you not very politely to leave, but they didn't want to get into a firefight. Um, <laughs> that wasn't the intention. And nobody fired any missiles or, or shot any weapons off in this situation. But it turned into a more tense situation than it needed to and I believe in this case, and and the 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 Pentagon sort of rumor mill believed that it, it, it happened because they just were being run run ragged, and the guy hadn't slept enough, and, and was again, dealing with some ship. Yeah, it would have been better for that ship to have been back. In yes, and exactly. Everyone getting rested and the ship getting spruced up. Um, yeah, was the deployment the, as important as all that? Right? Was the deployment right. worth? Putting a too tired, too stressed, and too um, too inadequately maintained ship forward uh, to maybe cause an international incident or make getting, a you're getting, make a, you're not getting bang for your buck. Yeah. No. Well, or you might get bang for your buck, which is what to you don't fair, want. To be fair, is this where we should start talking about the LCS program? Because I do wonder how much of the current problems in the U.S. Navy come down to the LCS program, which was. Kind of like Zumwalt, but in a different way, shooting for the moon, and of course fell dramatically short. And just, now just, they just haven't got the shit numbers that. they've got. Just one more point before that, though. We almost got to it before. You were talking about the failure of the uh, fuel tank because of corrosion. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Australia experienced a slightly more dramatic version of that in the 90s. Um, 
for some reason or another, we bought two US, two US uh, landing ship tanks, sight unseen, <clears throat> which we then converted into um, helicopter dock ships, uh, HMAS Canimbla and Menorah. Problem was they were not only rusty on the outside, they were rusty on the inside. So they were cleaned up. They went underwent a massive reconstruction program for turning them into uh, the helicopter carrying dock ships. Um, their service was cut rather dramatically short when one of them had their kill snap going through Sydney's heads because it was rusted. Oof. Because you couldn't see it because that particular section was right underneath the main engine, you know, the main uh, engine spaces. Uh, was one of those spaces which you know, it was uh, not possible to um, examine and to to clean out like the rest. And you know we were lucky that that happened where it did because what could potentially have been a fatal scenario, they were able to turn the ship around and get it back into harbour in a few hours. But uh, naturally, if that had been further out to sea under heavier weather, um, you know, we, we're talking probably lives lost. I suspect. So, yeah. you know, as you were saying before, it's is it a cough or is it cancer? And okay, admittedly, the late '90s is a long time ago, and a landing ship tank probably wouldn't be um, maintained to the similar sort of standard as a frontline destroyer. But you know, they probably would have said that had the same excuses then that oh, you know, the uh, reserve fleet was being run ragged, that uh, there wasn't enough downtime for the crew crews of the um the, uh, the amphib force or, or whatever it was that they came from and uh corners were cut and i would say what have you found with your bay class have you had any similar issues because she came from technically the royal fleet auxiliary in the royal navy but, you've got a full yeah, again but she's much much younger so we basically bought her off of you when you built her and then decided you didn't want her anymore so. well no we should run her for about five six years so well, we'd run her probably, in. Probably, it's probably significantly younger still than the, um, the landing yeah. tanks. So it's a bit but she's pretty. <laughs> in a sort of boxy Sorry, sort I just of like, I, 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 I'm still upset. I'm sad that we lost the the fourth player class. I think it was a it was a very silly decision. But no, anyway. Um, so you were talking about the you were young to talk about the um, LCHs, not, not the LCHs, the LCHs. Yeah. You've got H on the brain now, Jamie. Yes, I do. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Your comments about LCS? Uh, hello? Oh, sorry. Sorry. LCS? LCS? Yeah, yeah, we interrupted you. We're not talk about the LCS. You were launching... I just started off I, and... I interrupted because I wanted to talk about the uh, menorah and Canimbla. <laughs> right, so you were saying you were saying that the you were saying that the um, the LCS program may be part of the root of the issue, and I'm interested yeah. in kind of that that thought. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think it it may be because there have been uh, quite shall we say quite a few delays getting the LCS into into service compared to where they when they wanted them. So that means you would have had a plan that says, well, our fleet will look like this and it will have this many hulls at this year. So that will constitute a certain amount of operational deployments. 
But with the delays with the LCS coming into service and then all the various problems they've had, you end up in a situation where ships are still having to be decommissioned at the other end of their service lives, but you've now got fewer ships to do the jobs that you were intending to do. And that's going to stretch those ships even more. Plus, of course, as we know, the minimally mad element of the LCS not really worked out too well. So you've either got the options of sending out the few LCS that are there, which are then mostly could run the crews even worse because of their issues, plus not having enough crew in the first place. And you've got Burks having to stand in, whereas before it might have been will deploy 12 Burks to this location for this for six months and then and half a dozen lcs will take over it's now all oh, right well we've either got to keep those guys on station or we've got to grab these burks that have just come back in and send them out because we don't have the lcs operational lcs to to do that job because apparently no one's no one wants to draw down on uh u.s navy operational deployment commitments and they'll just throw fewer ships at the same deployments which just stresses everybody out whereas if the lcs had either worked or and or come into service at the time that it should have done then you'd have more more holes to spread those duties around and therefore individually the crews are less stressed and i'd argue there's another second order effect which has a lot of ripples on those lcs because the lcs is the smaller ship it's going to be where you're going to put your more junior commanders it's where you're going to test out people on their first command of a warship especially in the u.s navy which doesn't have opvs doesn't have all those things and i don't know why jamie and alex have both disappeared on camera <laughs> at the same time slightly scary uh but you don't have those things so it's where you test out your commanders and suddenly you don't have them so you've got people who are doing their first command of a ship and it's a full-size burke and you sit there and go, yes, I, I am sure you're ready for it. But I'd like to be really sure you're ready for it. And I'd like to be able to test you out on something a little bit cheaper with a little bit less crew and see how you manage that before I give you a full size book. Because a or Tiger. Or a Tiger. They are a very expensive assets. And if you look at how the US Navy approaches putting captains in charge of their aircraft carriers, and how the big process they go over it. And you go, okay, and now for the escort fleet? Oh, you've done all this, and now you've been given command of one of the most expensive, most powerful assets your fleet has. Yeah. Well, I, um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting. Sorry. Sorry, there was a okay. bit of a, a, a jump there. So the it, it's interesting, the... Um, the Navy has a number of sort of critical issues here, and that is, um, you know, we're, we're apparently trying to decommission the patrol craft uh, or coastal patrol craft that we have operating in, in um, Bahrain. We're getting rid of minesweepers, right, because we tried to load those all onto LCS, and, uh, and they're old. They're old. They need to go. Um, those things uh, are, are there. Even the engine is... Um, the engines that they use for those ships, uh, like they, they're out of commission, right? Like they don't build them anymore, and so we're having to sort of scrounge scrapyards to try and find parts for them. Um, we're losing a lot of junior command ships, right? A lot of places where you might be able to go command as a lieutenant um, to get a very early taste of it. I mean, those are starting to get out of come out of the fleet. 
Um, and that's a problem because it, it gets to your point of um, the, the fewer early command ships you have, you know, the first ship you are commanding now is the Arleigh Burke. Uh, that's a that's a big responsibility. It's a large ship with a lot of systems and, you know, a lot of plates to juggle. So that that is a, that's a significant problem. On the LCS point, I, I would say that there are I, I can't argue one way or the other, right? It's my not my role as a journalist, but the, there's a an interesting discussion to be had about decommissioning the whole thing, um, and and calling, telling Congress that you, you screwed up, um, because partly they're expensive to operate. They're not. Um, we, we were talking before the. Um, we were talking before the uh, the show a little bit about. Um, how I'm suspicious of cheaper, faster, lighter, better when you're talking about the U.S. Navy. Um, and that was the theory behind the littoral combat ship was we're going to have a, a light ship that's inexpensive, that's based on a commercial design that we can, um, you know, dart around the Persian Gulf. And that was the, that was the whole idea. It was for operating in places like the Persian Gulf where we expected to have problems in the littorals, right, the, littoral, the literal combat ship is the is, is the name of it and and ultimately that con ops didn't pan out because that while we were you know fighting our small wars the 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 plan decided to to build the world's largest maritime force in history right so not just not just their not just their their navy not just their heavy we're still more tonnage right Partly helped out by these gigantic aircraft carriers that are of dubious utility in the China fight these days. But although they are the only ones you can restock at sea and resupply of missiles at sea, which is the absolutely. point as we'd be making in again, Bill Trump's in this all the stuff about the sort of the rating system. Is the long war and stuff is the, you can't restock VLS at sea. No, you so, can't. So which actually makes smaller, faster, lighter ships even more insane <laughs> for the US Navy when you consider where the restocking has to come from. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, the, the, the littoral combat ship is, it doesn't fit the mission profile. It's not fuel efficient. Um, in order for it to be fuel efficient, you have to operate at speeds below the normal speed of a Burke or a, um, of, of a Burke or a, or a Ticonderoga or, um, or any of the other ships. You'd have to operate at, you know, 10 to 12 knots or maybe up to 14 knots on a good day with a, you know, following seas, you, you, you get, it's too expensive to operate. It's not fuel efficient. And there are going to be 35 of them. So when we say, oh, well, we have, when we're, if we're able to say, well, we have 315 ships, do you though? Because can, can you count on those? Can you count on 35 of your small surface combatants to, to be ready and available for a high-end fight? Because I don't know if you can. Because if they don't have any utility in a China fight, then what good are they, right? I mean, if they're not they're not useful for doing ASW in the GIUK gap, what good are they? Uh, you know, that that's still a, haul, a long haul. I have an idea for what the LCS will be used for. Go. Basically, they will cut, they will be sent to Europe and various other stations to take the Royal Navy's postings over in the South Atlantic and very and the GIUK gap, 
and probably some of the stuff of the French Navy and the Italians doing the Mediterranean and allowed the, the ships from the British, the French and the Italian Navy to come to the Pacific because those ships actually could be useful for you. <laughs> there you go, because they actually uh, they look good. Well, I, I, do, I do still like Sal, uh, Commander Sal's idea um, that we came up with last week of stripping... No, that was Sal Merkielango. Yeah. That, Sal oh. Commander Salamara is a different cell. There's oh. two cells. Oh, there are two cells. Okay, well, cell Mercury Lago. I know, we get confused, but there are two cells. Um, so, yeah, so uh, we were talking about um, initially starting off with the, pro the four concrete prototype LCS that are being decommissioned, using them as a proof of concept, um, but basically stripping them down almost completely, even if that necessitates taking away parts of the superstructure. And turning them into little vls farms hmm. um sticking some some like link 16 and other other communications suites on them and yeah getting them to carry basically just be little vls barges that can follow along um and basically act as extra magazines for the for the burks and the tycos or head, or head further ahead yes yeah. yeah or even the constellations to be honest because the constellations can have a reasonably um complex anti-aircraft suite for a frigate so it's a way of enhance enhancing the lethality of the other escorts and you can expend those missiles first and send them away That's using like wants. the one good thing about their high speed send yeah. them away to go and and restock wherever they need to restock without compromising the actual proper escorts that are on station um because let's face it if you've got a I don't know, get an LCSA tootling along with 64 VLS cells, and you've got, if the concept works out, maybe half a dozen of them, that's probably all the missiles you need to fend off the first wave of missile strikes, which then means you can send that lot away, maybe bring in another half dozen, and or even if they're not there, when the next wave turns up, you've got the actual escorts all sitting there with full magazines waiting, um, which it's a little bit of a complicated way of getting around the fact you can't really reload the VLS at sea, but um, it's better than, oh, we fired all our missiles. Oh, well, um, off home we go. And the poor carriers sat there going, where do my friends go? I was going to give the real world example because we talked about this last time. The good example is Crete. And the reason I use Crete is You've got Royal Navy ships reporting in. They've gone down the AA ammunition down to 40%, 38 25%, 30%, and 18%. And they send three of the cruisers, three of these five cruisers home, which are reported now. They keep the two out, which are at 30% and 18%, because they're two of the best AA ships there. Those two ships, Gloucester and... Fiji? I forget what the... Uh, uh? Fiji? Fiji are sunk the next day or the later in that day because they are sent out on a mission to support some destroyers on their own and they run out of AA ammunition and yeah. they're firing blanks and literally there's nothing they can do. And you sit there and go, and people go, oh, that wouldn't happen today. But you sit there and go, well, actually, it probably would because honestly, they might well have been carrying more rounds of ammunition and longer term ammunition if you consider the amount of ammunition they can fire and the amount they carried than we do now carry in VLS tubes. And considering yeah. how quickly we can expel, as you were saying earlier, the Aegis system, it literally just goes bang, 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 bang. And Aegis doesn't go, do we have enough missiles to restock me? Can we restock me? No, no, it just goes target, fire, target, fire, target, fire, target, fire. It doesn't think, 
can I be restocked? Right, right. And I don't, I doubt the captain or the person operating it in the middle, especially if they're tired, in the middle of a war zone is going to be thinking, can we restock these missiles or should we shoot some more at those missiles trying to come kill me? <laughs> uh... Carry on yeah, firing. That, 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 that decision is outside his, outside, over his pay grade, right? That's, yeah. uh, at that point, you're, you have the, the obligation to defend your ship um and uh and make sure that it can fight another day and who where where the missiles come from you know when you restock that that's over your pay grade right that's a Mm -hmm. that's at a fleet level that's at the squadron level um yeah you know there there are a lot of issues with with the um a lot of issues with the way the the u.s navy structured but i think partly uh a lot of it is due to a lack of foresight um, for the threat, right? I mean, I think we we underestimated we underestimated China. Um, and I had an interesting conversation with somebody who said, you know, the Zumwalt is the kind of thing that you would build when you didn't expect any competitors, right? Um, you know, if the stakes are we're we're going to build this really cool ship that may or may not work out um but it'll be a revolutionary advance in technology and we'll be able to take those lessons learned for a future hull that maybe you know provides a lot more utility uh you know a la the the seawolf and virginia class right so seawolf was this great class of ship it's just got a ton of torpedoes on it it's it's a incredibly quiet fast and lethal submarine but it just cost an enormous amount of money um, at the time, so they went to the Virginia class. And, and like the Zumwalt, you built three of them. Yes, exactly. So like the Zumwalt, we built three of them, and then we moved on. But the issue with Zumwalt, the issue with LCS, the issue with the abortive CGX program, is now we have an entire generation of ships that were either truncated or canceled, and we don't have anything in the pipeline. We have the FFGX, but it just started. We just started that program. It's it exists in PowerPoint, and one would like to believe uh, at a, at a relatively advanced state on design software at this point, right? It doesn't exist yet. It's not been built. It will have problems. It will run late. It will not be uh, as capable as we maybe hoped it would be, or it will be as you capable. You didn't buy Type 26. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. So you, you didn't do what the Canadians, the British, and the Australians are doing. You bought the, you know, you bought the second class ship. So the point is that we're so far behind um, in terms of being able to grow the fleet and recapitalize ships like the Leyte Gulf, right? That ship needs to go to the operating area upstate where it can sail around and be happy with its friends um and never have to deploy again uh because it's too old it's falling apart quite literally and it needs to be recapitalized because we ask a lot of our ships we send them all the way across from norfolk virginia to the persian gulf to operate for months at a time and make the whole trip back um they're built to to be used hard and when they're at their service life they're done right so when we sell when we sell a ship to, uh, that we use to Turkey, 
Turkey's going to use that ship a lot more lightly than we do. It's going to go out to the med, it's going to tool around, and it'll come back. Uh, we can't use that ship anymore because we'll put the same amount of miles Turkey will in five years on a single deployment. Um, so they need to be recapitalized. We've missed an entire generation of surface combatants. And until we decide that we no longer need surface combatants, which that, you know, there's never get a time that I can see that we won't need them. Um, we've really shot ourselves in the foot at a time as to, you know, Alex's point, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Chinese shipbuilding factory is, is just churning ships out left, right, and center. So what options are there? I think we've, I think, I think we got to accept, I think the, 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 you know, the, the options are accepting that we're going to be a little late to the great power competition, right? Um, it's getting it right, right? I think that's probably the best move. You know, there are probably other ways we can avoid World War III uh, with China than, you know, a heavy naval presence. We need naval presence. We need to be able to be out there and, and um, challenging excessive maritime claims. Leaning on our allies to help come do that is another way of 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 thinking. You know, the the Royal Navy is a little further ahead than we are, and so is the Royal Australian Navy, and the than we are in terms of next generation frigate programs. Um, you know, accepting that we're going to lose a big chunk of our force structure, and in order to build it back up to what we see as a long term competition may take longer than we expected because of the decisions that we made previously. But I think rushing it and, you know, putting out a bunch of unmanned ships that are unproven, we don't know if they'll operate correctly uh, with our with our battle force because we've never done it before. And we don't know that we can maintain a resilient data link uh, between them in a contested environment. We don't know any of those things. So rushing down that path just to to, to, to win the great power competition this decade, I don't know. That seems very risky. So I think taking your time, getting it right, and making sure that you have shipbuilding programs and submarine building programs and aircraft programs and drone programs that are mature and are pumping out ships at a relatively stable rate and pumping out platforms at a relatively stable rate while we work on things uh you know admiral greener used to say payloads over platforms it still applies because we don't have very many new platforms S focusing on payloads focusing on the basics that uh dr clark's talking about with you know well we need to be able to reload them right like think about things like that and just get it right because i think rushing it is gonna is going to hasten our decline because of if you can if you look at our technological development of the last several De a couple decades, there's no reason to believe going fast uh, will produce any better result than, you know, the years of delays and slope method that we've done trying chasing revolutionary technology. Um, you know, I think, is, I is think there, we just need to slow down and get it right. To, to just just at, at risk of making Admiral King, King uh, spin in his grave here, um, is there a lesson to be learned from the B-21? Because I suspect the U.S. Air Force realized it was in this position maybe a few more years before the U.S. Navy. So, you know, they've got um, your uh, nice group of uh, boutique boot B-2 handmade uh, stealth bombers reaching 
um, a, a good step of um, age now, and uh, like uh, the the British with their Nimrods, they're discovering that each one was built slightly different, <laughs> so therefore is a bit hard to um, to, to upgrade them Look, on a, we on a call sort of it standard basis. made in Britain. It's it's a, <laughs> a customised thing you pay extra for. Come on, now. You know, if you're going to if you're going to charge as much as you did for the B two, you have to call it artisan. <laughs> artisan. Okay, artisan bombers. So no, um, your the the you know the um, the Lancer is likewise fall, starting to fall out the sky, and I really have no idea. <laughs> but I was going to say the B fifty two. I mean, what that simply has to be the most amazing aircraft in all of history to still be able to stay in the air at the moment. Have I mean, they given them all new carbon fiber wings now, or something like that? Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that there's only about one or two floor panels in them that were were the original <laughs> components but nevertheless that so the, the, what they've done is they've now standardized on a advanced but mass producible stealth bomber the b21 yeah so uh which means that they haven't gone for artisan they've gone for first line first rate as a, you know so where you know, I guess what you need to determine now is what is that first-rate mass-producible? <clears throat> what do you need, and um, where can you build it, and in what sort of numbers? So obviously they're trying to turn the old Burke hull into that because that's what you've got, I suppose. Um, is the Burke hull up to that? Is the, is the Burke hull up to being the um, U.S. Navy's equivalent of the B-21? Uh, the, the the issue with the Burke is that we have, and I've you know I'm good buddies with one of the uh, well not good buddies but you know good 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 you know we we talk uh, you know every, every now and then and he's uh, he was the program manager um, for the Arley Burke and what he'll tell you is that uh, that design is maxed um, you know when we talk about how are we going to uh, fight off overwhelming air raids, right? Um, we can't do it with what's in the VLS mag alone. Um, we need to be able to do it. We can make a difference with uh, the evolved Sea Sparrow missile, which is you can quad pack into a single VLS cell. Um, but point defense is going to be the future of surface combatants. Um, it's going to be, you know, this whole... SM2 model of uh, shoot, shoot, look, shoot, uh, you know, firing off three missiles to, to kill one missile is, uh, you know, that's the recipe for Winchester um, in, uh, on a surface combatant. When China will send, is, is planning on sending a large spread of missiles for every, um, for every surface combatant. Because even if they spent, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars or Fifty million dollars on that spread of missiles. They just took out a one point eight billion dollar Arleigh Burke. Um, so you know the the cost exchange starts to look really good if you're China, right? Um, you know, so yes. if they can spend a hundred million dollars on missiles and still take out a one point eight billion dollar Arleigh Burke, you know that's that's a good that's a good deal um, if you're them. So the the future is going to have to be things like lasers, right? It's going to have to be technology that can, at close range, much more close than I'd be comfortable with uh, as a sailor, uh, 
really close ranges taking out um, taking out missiles. But there's really no choice there either, because most of the mostly people are hip to the idea that you have less time uh, to react to a missile if it's coming over the horizon. You have you know at hypersonic speed, split seconds at mm. that point to react to. Um, to a missile that's sea skimming and coming over the horizon at, at your hull. So you're going to need a, a weapon system that reacts incredibly quickly. You're going to need AI uh, to help you sort of make those decisions without making them personally. And you're going to need reloads. You're not going to, you wouldn't even have time to fire shoot, shoot, look, shoot on a, on a hypersonic missile sea skimming over the horizon. So you're going to need things like lasers. You're going to need things like high powered microwaves that, that are going to, um, that are going to uh, be able to um, they're going to be able to confuse the uh, confuse the or, or make that targeting that terminal homing solution that much difficult more difficult for um, for uh, uh, an incoming missile. But you but all those things require a power plant system that we can't jam into the Burke hull. Now we we maybe could, but then you start getting into are all the design trade-offs you'd have to make to make the Burke big enough? Is that are you at that point diminishing your returns on investment? So they're kind yes. of at that point where they need to find a new hull. Um, and if and the Zumwalt that hull hull, the Zumwalt could be, and I think they flirted with that idea. Um, it would certainly be a tall order for Bath Ironworks, who um, built that hull. And then we're told they weren't building that hull, so had to reorganize entirely around the Arleigh Burke, and then uh, would have to reorganize their entire shipyard again to then go do the. the that's going to have to happen anyway, isn't it? Though? Yeah. It, so. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it would also, but you know, so in order to maintain industrial base, we're, they're probably going to have to do a clean sheet design. Um, is is I think the consensus that I'm hearing from the Pentagon is that. They're, they're going to draw a clean sheet DDG next is what the current CNO is calling it. Um, a ship that has all the margin you would need to upgrade the power plant to operate these high powered microwaves, these high uh, lasers and uh, electronic warfare. Because electronic warfare, believe it or not, it, it, when you look at the when you look at the load uh, on a on a on a graph, um, the the laser is really interesting. It's it's uh you know the load elevates in a very predictable way and then drops off in a very predictable way in a way that you could probably figure out a, a, a battery system to that that could reserve the kind of power that it will predictably need per shot um, to be able to not draw too much off the the main uh, the main power system distribution system. But for electronic warfare, by its nature, the load is just all over the place. If you look at the, the, the graph, it's a squiggly line. It goes up and it goes down, and it's impossible to predict. And so it puts a um, – well, it's not impossible to predict, but it, it puts a, a great deal of stress on your, uh, your electrical system. So that kind of innovation in how do we get an electric-powered ship, an all-electric ship is probably what's necessary um, – that is able to deal with random, multi, multi, uh, you know, multiple random and uh, highly stressing loads. Um, 
that's that's going to be quite an innovation, right? So cruise ships operate today. There are plenty of cruise ships that operate as all-electric ships, but they're not firing off missiles and, and lasers and electronic warfare uh, systems and high-powered microwaves. So ultimately, they think that the big innovation for LC for the next generation large surface combatant it's going to be in that power plant it's going to be in that drivetrain um and in the in and in how it's going to be an all electric ship that um that creates an enormous to, amount of electricity basically you're going to need capacitors instead of magazines pretty much i mean that's i i talked to the former director of surface warfare just before he um, transferred to a new job, and I we had an interesting conversation about um, the power plant, and you know how. And he said that's the combat system of the future. Um, I'm going to need my tactical action officer to be at, to be thinking of the power plant as a weapon system um, in a way that they would never, they wouldn't have had to do. And in some ways, the innovations that we've done in LCS. Um, where there's a, a the uh, there's actually an engineer that can control uh, the power and propulsion plant on the bridge, right? Mm-hmm. It's that uh, th- that seems like a, a nice step towards where we need to go uh, in terms of uh, the future warfighting capability. It's this step between let's break down the topsider and uh and and snipes uh barrier the topsider and engineer uh barrier and and recognize that in the future the those those the those distinctions between topsiders and engineers are going to get blurred because we're all going to have to understand exactly how that power system operates we're all going to need to understand exactly how our propulsion system operates because if we can only if we have an enormous demand on our power plant that is going to reduce our overall speed, for example. Like if we can only make 12 knots while operating the ship the way we need to operate it for this engagement, those barriers between topsider focused and engineering focus are, are going to have to come down. Uh, yeah, so what it's, about it's... going for the low-tech option, though? Because every time I'm hearing the debate about hypersonic, this is something actually we brought up on Buildings a few times, but it keeps coming back to me is that hypersonic missiles coming are it's coming at so much, such speed. And yes, it does require electrical power. And I, I do agree. In fact, I was actually having a discussion with some Royal Navy personnel a few weeks about this. But my thinking is increasingly that we need to be looking at almost an interim option where we have lasers mated into a mount with something which has a double 40 millimeter or a double 57 millimeter or something which can pump out flak. So if mm-hmm. the laser doesn't work because of weather, because that's one of the other issues with lasers, if there's a heavy salt water that they're finding, or as they're getting them used to, they're finding all sorts of weather effects, which they are learning how to deal with still. I think we will conquer them. I'm sure we will, but it's going to be a time. So when the, if the laser's reduced, if the laser works, great. That will engage the missile at longer range. If not, you put up a flak wall between you and that hypersonic missile, because the thing is about hypersonic missiles is they're going so fast they're not really that maneuverable. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's why micro uh, th- that's why microwaves etc are so good for spoofing them because if they do take themselves off target, they can't redirect redirect themselves. They'll be past you and going off somewhere else, maybe to engage the big fat aircraft carrier behind you. But you know that doesn't matter. You'll destroy us now, safe. <laughs> and that's all that really matters. No, yeah. it's funny the the 
well, I wonder if part of this is a mental block, right? Because, you know, when you talk to people about, um, well, why don't you just use uh, Flack or if you use uh, CWIS, why is that not a good option? They'll say things like, at those speeds, destroying it with a with with uh, projectiles is you're still going to get a ton of damage just from the uh, momentum, yeah, from the momentum, and you're going to get a ton of damage from uh, shrapnel. Mm. But I don't think that you know we're going for the in Mortal Kombat, you know, the flawless victory. And I don't know that that's. Well, I mean, is, is, I, I don't see how a laser is going to stop that. How's a laser going to not? How's a laser going to stop that momentum? Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's going to be how, like how Star that? Trek and Star Wars. It's going to vaporize the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, short of creating a, um, you know, an air pocket in front of the the hypersonic uh, weapon, um, causing it to to, you know, bump either up or down into the sea. Um, you know, the best you can hope for is you know, jamming the control surfaces with some uh, chaff or something, I suppose, or or up- upsetting its very hot, very fragile aerodynamics yeah. um, with some sort of chaff system again. But um, you know, either, even that, given the fact that they their its maneuverability is so minute, um, even if these things start to tumble by the point by the point that you can actually engage them. They already can't miss you anyway, almost. Yeah. So, well, especially if you're using a 20 millimeter Seawiz rather than I know. Well, in the 1980s, they looked at or it was 1910. They looked at a 37 millimeter Seawiz phalanx. I th- I keep going for a 40 millimeter. I keep going. Look, you can get programmable shells now at 40 millimeter. You can get all sorts of things at 40 millimeter. Have a 40 millimeter Gatling. Have that on the side of your ship. It will it just tell in, in this area. Well, the thing is, it can put up a flat wall at enough of a range that by the that you know you can sort of go. We've got a threat coming from this range. They're going to be firing. The odds are again a hypersonic missile. It's not going to take a circuitous, a circuitous route. It's yeah. not going to be because otherwise it's going to be. So it's going to probably come in a mostly straight line. So you can mostly predict the angle it's coming. So you can mostly go right. Then we'll set up a flat wall, and then you go right. So nothing's going to get through that flat wall. It's just not. It'll get shredded. Yes, there might be bits which manage to tumble through and some shrapnel. There might be a bit of damage. But the odds of the whole missile getting through a flak wall and coming and hitting you are going to be low. So that means you can concentrate on the things which are coming from other angles. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's probably, if I were, you know, the way we think about things is probably the way they think about things. And to your point, it's probably not just the hypersonic that's coming at you that's the threat yeah they would probably want to make a very complicated threat that were you know multi, you know th- this is one of the reasons why tomahawk is still a valid and and very useful weapon uh not not only because they're relatively cheap um and we can expend you know if we needed to spend 20 20 tomahawks on being reasonably sure that we could take out um you know one of uh uh what are the the, the s400 Mm-hmm. Um, if if we had to spend 20, 30 tomahawks to make sure we took that out, but we know they only have four or five uh, in in that mm-hmm. vicinity, and then we have essentially air air superiority, or we we can take down That's their air defense, it. then spend it. Who cares? Um, you know that these sort of low end slow missiles can present a really complicated threat, right? And if and if I have a couple of like you know ten tomahawks coming at you 
plus a hypersonic missile, you're in a st- that's a challenging threat. And so I would imagine that the Chinese are probably thinking about, other than at the very long ranges of the DF-26, where it's more about, do you really want to come? You really want to come uh, west of? Uh, do you really want to come west of Wake Island? Because as soon as you do, you're gonna, you're gonna have yeah, a, a problem but, to consider. Yeah, as I always said, the moment anyone starts popping off ballistic missiles, it really does depend on who's in the White House or who's in Be- Beijing at that point. Because are they going to wait around to find out what those ballistic missiles target at, or are they going to presume it's a nuclear strike? Which is Again, why any time anyone goes, these now have changed warfare, I go, yes, they've made it more likely to go nuclear. Because you're basically relying that the person who's got, uh, because that ballistic missile, because it's so long range, has a very similar profile to other more longer range ballistic missiles. You're basically presuming that someone, when it's launching, is going to wait till it's in mid mid orbit or it's mid position, mid flight, before making a decision to fire back. Yeah. Yeah. Does anyone really want to rely on, and I know we'll probably rely on President Biden to do so, but um, the predecessor, President Trump, did, how, you know, how comfortable would some people feel about him being in that situation? Or we can go back through presidents. President Clinton, who tended to, in nicest way, react out of emotions the moment any time a fight was involved, any time a war was going on, versus Bush, who took it seems to take a while to do anything or obama who wanted to talk and talk and talk but then when it was pushed would make quite a decisive decision so how would he react how would any president react to the moment there are ballistic missiles in the air yeah yeah and that that that's a great point and and one of the things that i think we tend to gloss over uh is you know for example the the um the the ohio class uh, the SSGNs, you know, they're not, there were a lot of, there's a lot of pushback and I think it's valid pushback that, you know, even though they're tomahawks, um, you know, there was some valid pushback at the time that, you know, that it's, it'd be very hard for an adversary to make a judgment call of, oh, well, we know that that's a a tomahawk missile or we know that that's a, a nuke. Right. But to your point, it's even more problematic now when the missile essentially does the same, looks very similar uh, in its flight profile to what might be. And when you get to the point of China talking about, you know, being nuclear capable with the, with the hypersonic missile, right? Like, are you going to wait for the mushroom cloud at that point? Or do you assume that, that the thing that's coming at you is a nuclear weapon because you kind of have to assume that, right? If you're mm. trying to defend against it, uh, you would treat it the same way, right? You would treat, um, you know, if there was a hypersonic missile coming at Hawaii, for example, um, launched from a submarine, you would treat it the same way as you would a nuke, right? You would be triggering all the same sort of ballistic missile defense systems uh, to to try and knock it down or or you know, reduce the salvo size or, um, you know, do what we do with our, our missile defense system. So, yeah, it, it, it's becoming it's becoming sporting, I guess you would say, in terms of making those kind of fast determinations of what they are. And and yeah, the, the, the leadership does is going to start mattering here uh, in terms of like, are you going to wait for the mushroom cloud or are you going to just assume it's conventional or 
can you afford to just assume it's conventional? Who knows? Can you afford to wait for the mushroom cloud and then for people to be start recriminating against you because you did wait for it? Yep. Yep. And of course, anyway. if you do respond and they didn't factor it in, then they might respond with all of theirs, and then you've got a very funny scenario going on. Anyway. So yeah. we've, we've clicked over two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I suppose you need to bring it back full circle, trying to avoid the mushroom clouds by uh, maintaining that uh, imposing deterrent yes. presence. Um, so I don't know whether painting dragons on the fronts of your ships will solve oh, your problems. Oh, it works. It um, really does work. We can, uh, as British, me and Drac can both testify to the fact that painting a dragon on your ship is what really makes it look special. I mean, no one messes with HMS Dragon. When she turns up in the Black Sea, the Russians go, we want to be elsewhere. <laughs> Mainly because no one wants to mess with the Welsh when they're singing, but we'll leave that to one side. Well, it, the dragon it, really does set it off. It comes all the way back around to what we were talking about um, at the beginning with it when it comes to keeping your ship painted and everything. It's not necessarily so much about precisely what the art on the front of your ship is, although obviously the better looking the better. It's and a more, dragon is really mm, really good. It's more about kind of saying, yeah, look, we have we have this ship, we have all this technology on board, and despite all of that. We've got the spare time to put a dragon or a big bitey shark mouth or something on the front of our ship and maintain that. So we're yeah. completely ready for anything you might throw at us because really we're just bored because we're just now improving the aesthetic of our ship. And, and, the, crew, <laughs> and the crew love it. Mm. And crew yeah. morale, HMS Dragon is one of the happiest ships in the Royal mm. Navy. I mean, seriously, the morale on that ship is morale alone. I would not want to fight that ship because they really do have a thing of we are HMS Dragon. You really yeah. want to mess with us? And I... they are incredibly proud. And they people go, well, they, they, one person I was talking to said they keep having a run of good NC, uh, good COs and good chiefs on them. I go, do you have, are you saying it's a run of good senior officers or are you saying that a good, uh, it, the general good ship culture, which in part is fostered by looking at good, by having that dragon there, means that COs come in and they have to be good because if there's a part of it when you're a CO, when you take over a ship, probably you're looking into the crew culture and there's a culture of, do I have to suddenly convert this whole crew because I'm inheriting a crew which is falling apart? Or do I have a really good crew to work with so I can continue the best practices which my predecessors done? Yeah. Well, I will say that to, to our earlier conversation about command culture, right, that's such an important aspect of it. I left USS Normandy in 2006, and when I came back to it in 2014, just to visit and to see they they had installed a brand new baseline of Aegis, uh, which was really cool. They reorganized all of CIC. They they reoriented it to face forward instead of uh, a U shape that was kind of all over the place and didn't foster very good communication. And I, I think that honestly, the the shape of combat maybe even played into some of the confusion. That, that it had in, in Vincennes uh, and in other occasions when mm-hmm. um, when cruisers have run into problems. The, they reoriented the whole thing, and it was a really cool install, but the, the morale was night and day. Um, and a few things that I noted about it is that the, you know, one is that it looked good, um, and the, the crew was generally happy. I heard 
plenty of complaining, but the complaints were all relatively minor. Like you, you can always tell when a crew is happy when the complaints are just as, you know, just as sincere and just as, you know, uh, uh, forcefully delivered, but like, they're all pretty minor. Um, you know, when the complaints are, you know, I, you know, my, my dad died and they wouldn't give me, uh, you know, terminal or they wouldn't give me, uh, you know, emergency leave because we had an inspection coming up. Like, no, then you have a, a culture problem. Um, but Normandy was completely different, um, than when I left it a number of years ago. And the, the, the CO had a lot to do with that. I think the CO, the XO, and the, the chief's mess, in the intervening time, turned that ship around. Um, mm. That it was, a, it was a much better, much happier place. And so command culture really does matter, which kind of gets me to the point that I was making earlier. It's like, I know that, that command culture matters um, and that a lot of things play into it including how the ship physically looks and how you maintain it that that mystical bond that sailors form with uh the ships that they served on that all comes from the expectation that it looks good that it comes from all the hours of blood sweat and tears that you put into chipping painting uh sweeping the p-way shining the bright works that that builds that mystical bond like i said between a sailor and its big hulk of metal uh that puts it all through all uh put that you put through its paces and uh bring, bring back part of that goes away because we're just too busy i worry about the co's that were making that decision or were forced to make those decisions who then go into senior leadership with that attitude of there are some things that are important and there are some things that aren't. And one of the things that isn't important is the look of this ship. And if you think about it, in World War Two, how did the ships look? Yeah. That's in the, in the middle of a World War or World War One. You can look at the pictures that come through, the stories about the ships. Yes, they might, after coming back from Antarctic and often after an Arctic convoy did look like they needed to work. But by the time they were deploying out for the next Arctic convoy, by gum, were they cleaned up and looking good. And that was important. Apparently, that was important because every time they went into Russia, it would look good to have your ships looking good. But, <laughs> you know, the point is, the reason, part of the reason you spend that time, part of the reason you clean that ship, you prepare it, is because if it looks good, it feels good. Why, after the Battle of River Plate, were they worried about, were the ships worried about how they were painted? You think about it. Why did, in the hours that they're watching uh, Montevideo Harbour, are the Royal Navy cruisers, Ajax and Kilitana, why do they have paint teams out there? Is it just to, you know, as part of the parties which are ship, is it just to keep the crew busy? No. It's also because if the ship looks good, it feels good. And also the idea was that if the Germans then saw them, they'd look like they were undamaged. Because they would look, the, the, all the holes and everything would be covered up by paint and wood. Yeah, and maybe bent back in a bit, you know, a bit of hammering <laughs> here and there, and a bit of, well, not gaffer tape at that canvas. time, but some canvas <laughs> and you know, some rope, and you know, it, they looked nice, okay, they looked nice, but and uh, but it was and, important. And it's and there's nothing worse for a tired, beaten down crew to look at an enemy who's looking ship shape and shiny. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. 
And I guess you know you're on the wrong side of that equation at the moment, I suspect. But I mean, how, how much of it, however, is, is it due to materials? So, I mean, I've had the good luck to have been invited to a fair few Australian defence science and technology um, functions in recent years, and one of the different sorts, one of, one of the different things that keeps popping up is the amount of time that Australia spends researching paints and mm-hmm. um, you know. The, 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 the protective coatings and and the likes for its boutique ships because you know they're pretty expensive for a little country like this we know we're going to have to keep them going for a long time and we need we know we need to keep them operational for a long time so they you know they've put a lot of effort and time into um, finding out what's the best kind of paint that works on the west coast what's the best kind of paint that works on the east coast um, and what sort of um, you know uh, cost equation goes into it you know how much is it worth spending on this uh, these coatings to and but, but what do we get back from it so i mean it, has that been any sort of priority in the united states navy we've put uh, actually there is uh, a bunch of new stuff and one of one of the things that is causing is not causing the problem but is is at least contributing to the problem is we've got um new sort of paint and, and, and coatings that are supposed to last longer um, between needing, you know, in, in terms of the surface rust or the, the rust that goes beneath the, the under the, the coating, um, the, it's supposed to last longer. But, I mean, ultimately, ultimately that doesn't necessarily help the overall physical appearance of the ship because a lot of times the running rust comes from um overboard discharges right so no matter how good the um the coating is on the outside and how great you know you're it's still you know it's it's rust that starts to build up from just the water being pumped overboard um uh just you know the water goes to the pipe and the pipe is rusted and then that rust sort of gets into the water that you're discharging overboard and that gets uh runs down the side of the ship and so you look you know you get the tiger stripe effect um you still need to paint over that so you can have this great you know coating that maybe mm-hmm. overall is helping the, the the problem that alex was talking about earlier you know with the, the you know ultimately starts to eat away at the hull maybe you're helping that problem overall but it doesn't actually improve the appearance of the ship if you know a month after repainting it, you've got all this, you got the tiger stripes from the overboard discharges. So maybe the paint's more expensive, but it doesn't actually do what you need it to do. Um, So it's a great coating, but doesn't actually fix your problem. You still need to, now you're just spending more to do touch up work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So maybe that's not the right solution. So that's, that's one possibility. Um, I'm, I'm getting more and more convinced here that what you need is to allow, you know, World War II bomber art on the bows of your ships. Yeah, agreed. Uh, agreed. That, that'll get that'll get your um, crews motivated. There'll, there'll be competition between the ships and uh, divisions, um, units, to come up with the best and most controversial designs. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, you know, I know you're joking in a bar, Jane, but actually, no, I not. think that I'm would actually, actually work. Yeah, I'm not joking. No, because th- th- this is what it's all about, isn't it? It's about morale. Yeah. It's about um, you know building up that that um, as you described earlier that mystique of the ship. Give the the ship gets its personality, and it only really gets that personality as you say once you've invested your blood, sweat, and tears 
in that ship. And um, so by you know, having that rather stark red dragon slapped on the front there, um, you know, it be becomes a symbol. And look, it's, it's something that we've known from history. Ships had figureheads. Why did they have a figurehead? Well, it was an, it yeah. was an identification mark, but it was also a personality mark for the crew and you know the, the, their their sense of who they were and what they were doing. So, and the crew um, used to uh, actually some of the figureheads, and quite often, if the figurehead was lost, it would be a voluntary subscription of the crew, which would provide money to the captain to get wood for the crew's carpenter to replace it, the ship's carpenter. Yes. And it was a big thing. If your figurehead was lost, you would get it replaced. And it, it, th there are plenty of examples in history where the captains don't have to do it. The officers do not get involved in organising the figurehead. It is the crew. Crew want it, da 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 da, da. The only thing the captain does is approve the final design and make sure it's not anything which would insult the monarch. Pretty much in British history. Right. And there's the, the other aspect of the figurehead, and it's, it's sort of this sort of uh, amorphous bit of navalism that only other navalists really kind of seem to get, is that, you know, you're you're representing the sort of the capital ship, um, which to the Leyte Gulf, to bring it back to the Leyte Gulf, it, it is our capital ship. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, the other than the, the aircraft carrier, which is obviously the most visible symbol, it, for a frontline surface combatant, the cruiser is the the, the capital ship, and so, you know, the, there's a there's a mark of prestige of the state that goes into it. A beautiful figurehead, also sort of, uh, you know, in a beautiful ship, um, it, it carries the prestige of the state with it. And so, I think when you show up looking like a rust bucket, um, you know, or or what have you, 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 you are then signaling something about the state and that gets to Dr. Clark's point about the, the, uh, being a diplomat. And so, you know, I, I would, I, I actually think that's a, a reasonable idea to maybe try to build morale around a kind of figurehead, um, that the, that the crew, uh, takes on board and, and looking at the HMS dragon, um, example might be something I'll point out to Navy leadership next time I'm in an interview. Well, it is a, it's a well-performing ship, and it's not. I don't think it's the only one in the Royal Navy now. I think there are all sorts of ones now because we started um, the various river class have started putting things on them as well, the the OPVs, and I have been told by various sources that there are already various plans for the town class vessels when they come up the next time 26 is the city class are doing called they're also going to be there's a fair number of them which are going to put symbols of the cities which they're being named for on them and they're going to sort of be really sort of trying to smoke this because it has been quite so successful with dragon and for a small navy that matters yeah let's be honest while the royal navy is a medium power by world power, uh, by world standards probably it is compared to the USA a small navy so we've got to make sure we get the best out of every single ship and it, you found actually for the cost of a bit of red paint we get a really really fired up crew okay that's not a difficult expense for the raw navy just fine they buy a lot of red paint anyway this is not going to cause us an upset and what, since we're almost out of time one last question why the hell put missiles on your landing ships? Mm -hmm. uh, you, you're asking why we don't, or no, no, why, why, you? why? 
Yeah. So <laughs> the the the, uh, the uh, galaxy brain decision to um to to stick a tiny handful of El Razamor equivalent missiles oh. on the San Antonios. Ah, right. So the the, the idea kind of spread from this distributed lethality concept um and that if if it floats it fights right and they were the idea was being kicked around the opnav staff um in the early part of the 2010s and has kind of kicked itself up to being the um it came out of the surface warfare community which is really interesting that it's now become kind of the entire operating concept of the u.s navy Although their their idea was to just spread missiles around everywhere, um, so that everything's a target. You spread out the you spread out the um, the targeting the ISR and T uh, the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance and targeting uh, uh, apparatus of the the Chinese, and then you. Um, you know, so if everything you're worried, if you're worried about everything, you can't prioritize anything because everything is something you have to worry about. And so you're making a more complicated decision for your adversary. So at that point, uh, that that idea started gaining traction. Like, what if we put them on our merchant vessels as well? And well, there's Geneva con- conventions issues with that. Um, but mm, there aren't. You just there are various ways the British have of getting around those. Trust me, we can. We, uh, we have good lawyers. We'll loan them to you. <laughs> we've uh, done in two world wars. We've done all sorts of things. We can get around this. Don't worry. <laughs> so we. Uh, so you know that that sort of is in the ether now, and, and essentially you got you had um, you had the higher command look at the surface navy and what they were doing and thinking like actually. That's not a bad concept for the entire uh, the entire military now to to try and uh, emulate, right? And, and so you've got the the Marine Corps and the Army now being like, well, we want to be part of distributed lethality too. So they're talking about putting missiles on small islands in the South Pacific and in the uh, you know to to be able to kill things at very long ranges. And this whole idea is kind of morphed from inside the uh inside the 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 small surface warfare shop you know 10 years ago into being the entire way that things think so why would we put them on a landing ship well it just kind of goes back to that original sort of concept which has evolved from there of just putting it on everything and so it's kind of hang hung on and so you may start seeing more missiles on more interesting things just overall yeah fair enough it's I, just, I, I, we, I, I, we, we've been yeah. we've been puzzling over that because um certainly my attitude and i think jamie's probably got on a similar wavelength is when you're out at sea if you're going from west coast usa to i don't know let's say your counter invasion of taiwan your lhd or lpd or lal whatever is not a threat to your opponent while they're going after you with surface action group subs and aircraft until pretty much they're off of the coast that's when they become a threat so whilst it would obviously be nice if you're the chinese navy to knock off a few of them especially if they're full of troops if you've if your choice of target in the mid pacific is we can shoot at the troop transport or we can shoot at the ali burke or the taika or the carrier that can you know come back and shoot at us and kill us 
we're going to prioritize the things that can shoot back first. Yeah. So that means the actual sort of the, the time at which your landing ships and your troop transports are the highest priority are there's a very narrow window at the end, mm-hmm. which obviously is probably good news for the three or four thousand troops you've got aboard. Whereas if you now do go with this distributed lethality, as you say, everything fights, then that means, well, if that platform is carrying a dozen LRASM and that platform is carrying a dozen LRASM and that one's carrying two dozen LRASM, well, they're all, especially if you're a surface ship, they're all now threats to us. So we're going to shoot at all of them equally, as you said. But a Burke or a Tycho is fairly well placed to defend itself if yeah. someone lofts half a dozen granites or silkworms or whatever at them. The San Antonio, not so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's got uh, 3,000 troops on board. Yeah, and it's got a lot of very squishy people on board. So it's all basically painting a big, please shoot me even more than you wanted to shoot me before <laughs> sign on your troop transport doesn't necessarily seem to me to be the wisest idea. I mean, if they'd gone with the... So they were built with set base for VLS. Mm. If they if their idea of, put, of distributed lethality was we're going to actually put the VLS in and actually put, I don't know, quad pack ESSL or something, that would make sense. Yeah. But why try and to that, make an that amphibious... Would up, tr- that would free up space on the um, on mm. the Burks, uh, Burks and the Tycos mm. to carry extra, you know, uh, long-range anti-surface missiles. Yeah. The, the weird thing for me seems to be why are we trying to make the troop transport an offensive platform and thus moving it even further up the target priority list than it already was. Right. And also, let's face it, that troop transport would have to be rather close to the enemy to be able to use the sort of weapon that is being put on it. Yeah, you're right. So El Razm is a long-range, very smart missile, and there's kind of a, a question about whether... But it's not that long-range, right? Especially right. when you launch it from... Uh, from the deck of a ship and not from an aircraft, right? You get a little more range out of an aircraft than you would uh, out of the deck of a ship. And so you're even more limited. You know, I I, I see your point. I mean, frankly, uh, if you're talking about the ranges of an LRASM, I would much rather that missile come out of an attack submarine, which we would surely have going with that group. Yeah. Uh, You know, given... So, given that you're, you know, you're putting such a an item on these ships, and we talk about points of diminished returns, you know, the surely a that there are alternatives to spend your money on that will yes. help protect the lives in that ship, which is what that ship's there to deliver. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I, I get distributed lethality, but there's always a point of diminished returns, and uh, I think it's actually gone into reverse once you start applying it to um you know ships such as landing craft assault ships um what do you think about what do you think about getting uh getting putting them just you know, strapping a bunch of missiles on to uh, a merchant ship that's been in vogue recently congress really likes that idea i don't know that it works but uh, well you know we, think, we, think... we know that we know that um russia and uh, mm-hmm. israel have both practiced doing that haven't they um yeah the the, the concept of the um uh, arsenal ship yep. is something we have yep. talked about a fair bit and while it looks appealing it's still a lot of, of expensive equipment on a ship that's not optimised to carry it and deliver it and maintain those weapons and it's a very easy target even if you have got it well defended doesn't take much 
to take to take it out. I mean, I, I suppose if it's a if it's a huge super tanker type, type of ship, it's not it's, it's going to be rather hard to to sink it straight away. But I would say, you know, that perhaps you're going to get more value from that converted um, um, littorial combat mm-hmm. ship, which can dash back to harbour at forty knots to reload, than you are from a large container ship chugging along at ten knots. Yeah, um, I think I think that's the main problem for me is that if you've converted a civilian ship, a civilian ship is not known for traveling at 30 knots. Right. So I I think it to a degree it probably makes more sense for someone like China or Russia because if they're facing a major naval war where they're going to need that many missiles at sea, it's probably going to be a defensive war. At yeah. which point, hiding it in the shipping lanes, yeah, it's, it doesn't matter. Whereas if you're the US, um, you're probably going out, you're probably the one on the offensive, and your carrier group can, can and in some cases going to need to be travelling at 30 plus knots. You can't really afford to tie yourself to something that can chug along at 15 at best. Um, and... And even if you did want to, that immediately doubles your um, reaction time because you've now now instead of doing a high speed dash across the Pacific, you're now doing a slow speed chug across the Pacific while your your, your dinky little container ship comes toodling along after you. And let's face it, if you are the US and you're in a situation where you're having to fill container ships full of missiles as a defensive <laughs> strategy, you probably have much bigger problems on your hands at that point. Although I, I do see I do see a, a potential for the Arsenal ship concept, kind of like the like we we're saying with the converted LCS or whatever, or even a bigger version. But it's got to keep up with the fleet without impeding it. And just going quickly back to the San Antonio's, I have heard some people say, "Oh well, the missiles are there for um, shore support for the troops when they go ashore and everything." Um, to which my response is, "Well." Really, uh, is uh, uh, the U.S. Marines that desperate for shore support that they're relying on a dozen missiles you've slapped onto one of their landing and transport ships? It's like, what is the rest of the Navy doing at this point? <laughs> what yeah. is like, in what circumstances are you phoning up the the the, the, the trans yeah. the troop transport and going, can we have some fire support, please? It's like, what Cause, cause, you know, I... to everything else? <laughs> I can see it ending up being Falklands all over again, where you'd be begging to uh, and scraping out of museums a few old twenty millimeter cannons that can actually do something um, to you know to at least make the ship uh, make the crew feel better. To, I don't know um, where you, know, you get this themselves. concept of begging from. They just nicked them. There was no begging involved. You're going for begging here. Begging is not what the Royal Navy does. It turns up. It goes. That looks nice. And then you lose it, and you get a note later saying, "Sorry, we need it more." You do, <laughs> there is no begging here. Yes. But, but yeah, uh, my, my point is, is that yeah. it's 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 the wrong weapon system for the wrong scenario. It, and yeah. there's so much more that that would be useful in that space and for that money. Yeah. I, 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 is, I, sorry. We'll need to come back to we'll need to come back at some point to this. But this gets to my point about the the need for our next generation. I call it a battleship. Probably more of a, oh, a, hey, a heavy You and Drac will get along like a house on fire. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But the, the idea is to, um, the idea would be to create a, a platform that, since sea control is only ever temporal, right? It exists in space and time. 
if you created a zone of sea control that was outside the range of Chinese long-range missiles, but were still able to target China and high-value Chinese targets with hypersonic missiles from way over the horizon. Um, but then you also had it as a, you know, as a as a capital ship, as a as a uh, you know the the equivalent of an aircraft carrier. You know, it shows up in um, if it shows up in Manila Bay, people know that. You know, hey, we've got a we've got a big problem here. If the worst breaks out, that's the whole effect of the carrier, anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I, I think there is a place for it. And in fact, I've heard on the on the San Antonio part, uh, I've heard that that is a potential use case. Well, I know that it is because Huntington Ingalls uh, has pitched it as such. A uh, potential use case for that hull would be to load it down with VLS. Yeah. Um, it's got an innovative power system. It can do some of the point defense things that um, that uh, that uh, we we talked about earlier. Um, it's built in such a way that you could just replace some of the storage space and and put it put uh, you know vertical launch tubes there. So it, it's a possibility. It's something to think about. In my mind, it looks um, the next generation heavy cruiser or battleship looks a lot more cool than a big San Antonio. <laughs> but yeah, you've got a cool just, hull, use it. <laughs> you, well, just go check out just yeah. go check out um Dr. Clark's uh, Twitter feed. Uh, you'll see a design sitting there ready and waiting to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I've uh, yeah, I mean we, we we did discuss this previously. I had we had an idea for a battleship that we're basically trying to save weight on strike missiles because well, as, as a, a missile person yourself, you probably know how much of the missile's reaction mass is used just getting it out of the tube and in that initial boost stage. Yeah. Um, so one of the ideas we had was, it, well, if, if Nashwen railguns kind of get themselves moving, you could literally go back to a battleship style arrangement where you have a turret full of railguns, except that instead of firing shells, you strip down a missile to just basically it's boost uh, not it's boost mode it's sustainer motor and yeah. obviously it's really strike and your onboard power generation substitutes in for this boost stage so you can then load a missile into a gigantic railgun and then you fire that missile using the railgun up into the upper atmosphere um, at ridiculous speeds at which point it's going kind of going semi-ballistic and then whenever the engine needs to kick in, it's now in the upper atmosphere where it doesn't have to fight through the lower atmosphere, atmospheric density. And it's already got a bunch of velocity and it's already got all the potential energy of being like five, six, ten miles up in the sky. Um, so all of that boost uh, and initial um, flight motor and fuel isn't needed. So you can either have a missile that has the same range, same capabilities, but in a much smaller package and therefore you can carry more. Or if you really want to, you can have the same amount of uh, fuel and everything, except now you've boosted it up there using the railgun. It can now fly much, 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 much far further. Uh, so you've got all the capabilities of a missile, but going going further and, and longer range and better. That's a really cool idea. I have to, I'll have to run that by uh, somebody that, that works on these systems to see if that's mm. a, a viable alternative. Yeah. That's a really cool idea. I, I like the way you guys make sure you, make sure you check that, uh, that check whether or not they can come and chat with us about it. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> the, I mean, the, the, yeah, the loading system obviously is going to be slightly slower, so it's not going to be suitable for SAMs. 
because yeah. but for strike you can just sit and go yeah yeah we, we you thought the tomahawk had a range of i don't know 1300 nautical miles watch this <laughs> exactly exactly well I, I always thought that the the russian system the the cold launch out of the vls mm. looks just incredibly goofy like you lose you lose all the effect of the you know the, mm. the thing coming up there but it it does i think save them some mass right i think it mm. saves them a little bit of money to do it that way and it saves uh some space on the ship yeah uh because you don't have to allow for the you know the, the plume yeah the internal internal launch but it, it looks stupid yeah, and it, although on the other hand, it does look absolutely hilarious when it does its cold launch and then the motor fails to ignite, and there's that fraction of a second where you can tell everyone, including the camera, is just like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> you can just you can see the mental calculations. The guy's just like, where's the nearest cover I last saw? <laughs> just as gravity starts to reassert itself. Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, thank you very much for a great uh, chat. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. It was great to join we, you guys. We, we, we went all over the place, but that's what we always do. That's why we're called Bilge Pumps, I think. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And well, thank you for joining you so us for the, what is the 40th episode. It was quite it was quite surprising when we realised that it was 40 episodes, because this was, and you probably don't notice, because we were supposed to start out as just three episodes. It was just uh -huh. a bit of fun. Last March, was it? Or last April? Just something to do in lockdown, because we were all bored. Yeah. And that's turned into, yeah. Here we are, still. Well, yeah. congratulations so, on 40 episodes. That's um, Thanks for having me be part of it. Oh, and uh, fire any ideas and suggestions off whenever you feel like it, and yeah, we'll be happy to have you back on. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.